the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 99 of Magic Markets. We are recording on a Friday today, which is a bit unusual for us, and we have an unusual guest from an unusual place. Richard Asherson, welcome from the UK. Before I welcome Mo, I just have to ask you... Was your money on Liz or the lettuce? Be honest. Uh, I, I won't comment. Uh, I won't comment on political policy changes. Nice to see you, finance. Mate. You see, this is the joy of. Uh, yes, you too. You see, this is the. Uh, there's this tiny amount of joy in South Africa of seeing other countries with their challenges. Nothing's going wrong in your world, Mo. Canada's still fine, but the UK is going through a somewhat tough time this week. Welcome to Richard. I think the the UK is is just so interesting right now, and I I kind of look at this from the other side of the pond. And I look at my South African mates all kind of in glee because they're not alone with these kind of political shenanigans. But the simple fact of the matter is that the UK is this manifestation of so many global fracture points that we're seeing. And I mean, it might be more evident in the UK, but these are fracture points that are occurring in many geographies, many financial markets, and they just manifest in different ways. Uh, I cast my mind back very quickly before we get into the topic at hand. I cast my mind back to things like Arab Spring. And if you looked at that, you know, just prior to Arab Spring, you had the spike in global food prices. And a lot of people were saying this is going to cause social disruption, social fractures. And hey, presto, you ended up with that across an entire region. So right now we know we've got superinflation. Let's call it that. We've got these, these protracted shortages in, in, in critical resources, energy in particular. And all that's happening is it's manifesting in a different region. It's manifesting in Europe now. It's manifesting in the UK. So it's very important for investors to contextualize that. I certainly take no glee in terms of what's been happening in the UK. But I do think that South Africans are uniquely placed to understand this. And so that is why it's so fantastic speaking to Richard and the team at Westbrook, because they have the South African perspective 
in the UK. They know how to weather the storm because they've lived it in South Africa. And so now they can take that and apply their learnings, their lived experience in a totally different market. With that kind of backdrop, Richard, welcome to Magic Market. Thanks, Mo. Thanks, guys. Nice, nice to be here again. Lucky number 99. Yeah, and a good time to have you back. Thank you. So, you know, listeners can go back and listen to all the other Westbrook shows. I'll meet almost the entire team now, I think, from a deal-making perspective, which is really cool. And you're based in the UK on the private debt side. So super topical location, as we've mentioned, and also a super topical asset class because it's impacted by everything, right? It's the yield curves, it's the valuations of deals in the market, it's affordability, it's the willingness to transact, everything you're kind of seeing at the coalface, which is incredibly helpful. Just before we get into some of the questions, though, you have just raised capital, haven't you? I think it's worth just spending a couple of minutes right up front understanding more about what the latest news is from Westbrook on that side. And then we can pick your brain on what you're seeing on the ground in these deals. So as you know, Westbrook is an alternative asset management provider. We look to invest across the capital spectrum, um, really looking for asymmetric returns, really where you know, the chance of capital loss and, and, and downside is lower than the, the possible you know, upside return. And with that in mind, goes to, you know, in 2020, 2021, during the, the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns, we started forecasting what the result of, of the pandemic may be and you know, persistent low interest rates would be. And we started to believe that we would be going into a world of high inflation, high interest rates and, and volatility, and that would have an impact on asset prices and, and more importantly, have a dislocation on the finance market. And uh, therefore, we set out to, to raise a new strategy, which we call Westbrook Dynamic Opportunities, which is taking advantage more so in the corporate lending market, where we look for asymmetric return backing private equity sponsors and entrepreneurial management teams. We have the ability to get effectively a debt-like structure. So we're able to invest into debt, which is really what we do and do best, but with the ability to take upside in the form of equity and or warrants, right, which will give our investors in that fund, you know, the debt-like return with the potential upside and and effectively giving them what we call a hybrid capital instrument, which is really the combination of the two, to give investors really a net return in the mid-double-digit IRRs, um, which we think is incredibly attractive. And more importantly, as investors ourselves, we think it's where you want to be within the capital structure going into what we think will be a very difficult economic period over the next 12 to 36 months. I think I want to jump in there. So before we even get into some of the technicalities around hybrid, I mean, we've discussed the merits of hybrid with Westbrook, and I want to unpack that for our listeners as well. But I think almost a step back, just based on what we've seen from a macro perspective. I mean, we've seen yields, whether you look at across the entire yield curve, short end, long end, that has stepped up so significantly. And so before we even get into the, you know, you want to play across the capital stack, I want to almost start off by saying, how has that significant shift in the yield curve, specifically in the UK, I mean, we're seeing it globally as well. How has that impacted the pricing of some of these structures? How has that impacted, you know, the, the overall structure of the market and the viability of some of the projects that you would be putting into something like this opportunity fund? Because it also fundamentally changes the, as an investor, I'm going to look at this and I can now invest in, let's call it risk-free. We know it's not risk-free, but I can invest in risk-free assets at a significantly higher level than we were talking about, say, 12 months ago. So that certainly positions your product, any product for that matter, equity, hybrid, very differently on a risk-reward basis. So maybe if we can unpack that first, because I think that's a good starting off point. 
Sure. I mean, look, I think taking a step back, I mean, for the last 10 years, probably since 2009, globally, we've been in a zero interest rate environment, right? Just to give the listeners some stats, you know, in the UK, and I can only speak about the UK, I'm not qualified to speak about the US and or Canada, which maybe Mo can give us some some feedback on. But the last 10 years, interest rates in the UK, base rates have been 0.59%, right? That's average over the last 10 years. The 20-year average is 2.91%, and the 30-year average is 4.68%, right? Now, where we sit in kind of five-year gilts, right, is around 4.3 today, right? Four. So we're not out of the context of what, you know, we've just been in a persistently low interest rate environment kind of as a, I guess, as a consequence of the global financial crisis and quantitative easing across the globe, right? What's that? There's obviously been an incongruence to inflation, right? Inflation also for the last 10 years has been incredibly low in developed economies, and, and that's spiking now as well, right? And, you know, you've seen UK inflation double digits, uh, US similar, and the way you curb inflation is by raising rates, right? Um, it's, you know, fiscal and, and monetary policy concerns. So, yeah, we're in a rising interest rate environment, and they're doing that to curb inflation in line with the inflation policies of the BOE. And, you know, where you look at cash in the bank, right, where you were getting zero, you're now getting, I think, 2 to 3%, maybe a little bit more in dollars, and it's becoming moderately, I would say moderately attractive, right? I mean, once you factor in income tax, less attractive, even at you know, those levels. So, look, we definitely are seeing rising rates, right? And as a consequence, you're seeing, you know, cash rates uh, going up, right? Well, I mean, overall, right, I think in globally, we're seeing an increase in risk. And capital structures need to change accordingly, right? So they need to combat both rising interest rates, which have obviously an impact on cash flows and the, the, the source of repayment and the use of, of, of cash flows to repay debt, I mean, goes without saying, r higher rates lead to higher cash flow pressures on, on highly geared structures, and leverage is generally the killer of, of all businesses. So we, as a, as a business, we need to be extremely cautious when lending, you know, stress testing and assessing what that leverage does. Secondly, from an inflation perspective, it's the same argument, right? Inflation, if can't be passed on to the consumer or to, to the end user, will have an impact on margins of those businesses, Right and will consequently reduce cash flows, and, and therefore, again, effectively increasing the leverage if you look through it, look through the lens. So overall, right, we think that capital structures need to change, they need to be reevaluated, and additional equity in, generally, in, in general would, would potentially need to be provided, right? And what that's actually resulting in is, you know, we believe asset prices will come down, right? Multiples will come down, again, as a function of leverage, right, and as a function of interest rates. And I think we're starting to see that in, in the UK, but it's still very, very early days. There's not a lot of M&A activity. We're seeing, you know, probably the slowest period, period of M&A activity we've seen, uh, and it's probably been most of the year, driven partly by Ukraine and kind of the beginning of the year, and then obviously the political turmoil and uh, that we've started to see this, this side of the year. So when looking at debt, the key is to make sure that your asset is you know, you value your asset correctly, right? And you're being realistic to the point of skeptical as to what that asset is valued at. And really, when you're looking at risk, you know, you're looking at liquidity and you're looking at the liquidity of those assets. So you kind of move, we're moving into the world of more liquid, more liquid assets. So you're looking at, you know, lower end residential 
as an example, which is more, more tradable, right? Or you're looking at assets where there would be a larger buyer market for, right? So that's generally moving more towards the center of, of London and other core urban areas when you're talking about real estate. And then when you're looking at businesses, you're looking at businesses with strong margins, you know, high barriers to entry. You're looking at businesses there that have the ability from a price elasticity perspective to pass on costs to their consumers and to sustain through a moderate leverage or, or, or lightly leveraged structure to sustain their business through what will be a difficult trading condition, right? And then you've got all the other impacts that inflation has, right? And currency volatility, which to Mo's point, you know, I'm very fortunate we come from South Africa. My shareholders and my investment committee are, are, are predominantly South African and they've all been private equity investors for longer than I think uh, Ghost has been alive. Uh, well, I don't know if a ghost is actually ever alive, but you know. This one is, this one is. Only just sometimes, but mostly he is. And, and I'm very fortunate because they've been through you know, South Africans have been through high currency volatility, high inflation, high interest rates, volatile asset prices. And we've seen real estate go back, go up, but also go down, right? And I think, I think for the UK, the last 10 plus years, you know, I, I think it, it's been a swear word if you thought asset prices in, in UK real estate would go down. So we're very fortunate. We, we're assessing stuff through a different lens, which is giving us a competitive advantage. We do call it the Westbrook advantage. And we think that that gives us a real competitiveness in looking at transactions and pricing and structuring risk. So what we're definitely hearing is equity values under pressure. We know this. And with a hybrid fund, that's a nice place to play. It's also a nice time to be a capital allocator rather than necessarily an operator of a business in a specific sector. Because if the sector turns against you, it almost doesn't matter what you do. It's going to hurt you so badly. When you're allocating capital, you can look for the opportunities in and amongst the chaos and actually try and invest in those spaces. So it is a lovely time to be in financial services, I think. Uh, it certainly was always my feeling, you know, in my advisory days. It was nice to be able to dart and dive around these issues. Look, I think it's twofold. I think one, when you've got an existing portfolio, right, which we do, the key is to kind of go back to basics and reassess everything on a first principles basis. Look at the asset, look at the value that it, it has, look at the liquidity, look at where you sit within the leverage structure. And fortunately, you know, for Westbrook, we plan, you know, predominantly private debt. Um, we generally have a very large equity buffer that you know, is subordinate to us and supports our debt. And that obviously is followed by strong shelters with you know, deep pockets that in the event that you did need additional capital, you've got a port of call to call on. And we, effect, we did that very effectively during COVID. I think we learned a lot of lessons coming out of that pandemic and that crisis, and we've gone straight into what I think will be a, you know, a, a similar, similar crisis. So the starting point is to work through the portfolio and make sure that you're well protected and you're proactively approaching assets that you think may come under stress going into the next 12, 18, 24 months. And you're starting to have those discussions earlier on, right? And we're using effectively covenants and the relationships that we have directly with borrowers. You know, you know fortunately, we're not in, you know, if, if you're in a bond, uh, unsecured bond that's listed, you don't have a relationship with the company. You know, you don't have covenants that you can measure and you don't have a seat at the table from a negotiation standpoint. You know, we have all of those things. You know, so we're out there on the front foot, you know, directly negotiating and, and assessing risk. And that has stood us in good stead and hopefully will continue to, to do that. Our portfolio is in good shape, you know, touch wood, touch everything. But that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't stop us from continuously reassessing the reality of the situation. I think going on to the front foot, if your portfolio is in good shape, right, which it is, then it becomes quite opportunistic and quite exciting 
for, for players like ourselves, like Westbrook, where we can assess and price risk and we have access to capital, you can really find interesting return, re returns for, for our investors. I know Mo must be burning to ask you a macro question, but I'm going to sneak in one more deal-based question, then I'm going to let him, let him jump in. I'm sure it's a macro question coming, but I guess we'll find out. Just on that equity buffer that you mentioned, so something I wanted to find out is, are you seeing private market deal valuations coming off a bit in terms of where offers are potentially being made? Mo is gesturing at me because I bet you that's something that he wanted to ask, and I stole his question. Don't lie, Mo. I know you had a macro question in mind. So, uh, Richard, that's, that's really the question is, are you seeing offers come down? Or uh, are they not yet taking into account what's happening in the yield curve? It's a, it's a very good question. I think the, the answer simply is yes, we are seeing offers come down. We're seeing bids at, at, lower, at, at, at lower quantums um, or lower multiples. Are we seeing deals go through? Because they, you know, uh, there's still a very big gap between uh, seller and purchaser expectations. I think the jury's out on that one. But we are definitely seeing, look, we're in a risk-off environment, right? And I think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines with capital waiting for the other side to blink, right? And it's a kind of a game of who blinks first. Look, in real estate, you definitely, I mean, it's a function of, of interest rates, right? You're definitely going to see asset prices come down. Uh, and we're starting to see that. I think if you look at the data coming out, I think uh, they had the, the UK at its slowest month. I think they had 200 million pounds worth of investment in August 22, right? That's its slowest month on record, right? In terms of new investment into the UK real estate sector, right? Um, that's office, so that's commercial, but just gives you a feel. There's very little being done at the moment. So it's very hard to assess because there hasn't been that point, and I think Mo, Mo's probably gonna, we're gonna talk about this, where, where does, when, do, when do people start requiring liquidity? right? And, and that's going to be the fundamental question. You know, when does it break and when do people need to start accessing liquidity and, and therefore, you know, uh, having to do, to do deals and having to sell assets? We're not seeing that yet, but I'm pretty sure we will see it within the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. I'm going to jump in here. And, and the reason I was gesturing is that's exactly the question I was going to ask was around actual deal values. Are you seeing those come off? So instead of posing the questions, I think Richard's answered a lot of it. I'll, I'll offer some perspectives from North America, um, which is which is quite interesting because I think there's some commonalities between the UK market and, for example, the Canadian market, uh, maybe less so to the US market. So let's let's unpack that. In terms of deal values coming off on, on kind of real estate, as Richard says, you've seen those come off because that's a function of rate. So you have seen those come off. In terms of businesses, what's been remarkable for me here, and I, I'll compare Canada to the United States, right, is that I'm involved in a couple of things on, on both sides. And if I look at the US, we've seen it come down in terms of valuation. So we've seen valuations ratchet down, whether those are attractive or not is still open for debate. But what's fascinating to me is I haven't seen the same thing north of the border. So if I look at the kind of multiples that people trying to sell their businesses at here in Canada, those are still quite elevated. And that's the reason why it's almost as though I feel we've, we've had this kind of disconnect in rates, but we haven't yet felt the impact fully in the Canadian market. Now, that could be because it's a smaller, closed market. There are lots of oligopolies here. Industries are slightly more concentrated. And so even if you're kind of a mid-tier business rather than a large-tier business, because you're operating a reasonably, let's call it closed-off market, less competitive pressures, maybe people feel they have the ability to hold on to these higher prices, higher multiples, because they perceive somewhat of a defensiveness to their business here versus something south of our border. So that's just for context. 
Now, in terms of what I was talking about, the similarities between the UK and Canada, we were talking about this off offline, but I think it's worthwhile just highlighting this for listeners, is that in the US, for example, if you're financing a deal, you can generally fix that deal and you can fix it to terms. So if we take it down to, let's say, a residential deal or even a commercial property deal, whatever it may be, you could probably fix that out to the term of your investment, whether that's 10 or 20 or 30 years. The thing in Canada is that Whilst you can fix it and you can amortize it over that time period, you can only fix to a maximum of five years. And so this comes about with a very strange, interesting refinancing risk. And maybe that's the question I want to pose to Richard here is that in Canada, we haven't seen that yet. I think Richard indicated that, you know, as that liquidity requirement kicks in, that's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. And in Canada, I think 12 to 18 months is probably a fair time period. As people hit their refinancing windows, you're going to end up with a lot of trigger risk because people may have funded deals at, say, 2%, and now they have to fund those same deals at 6%. And that has a material bearing on cash flows. As soon as that happens, a lot of things tend to break in the economy. So that poses to the macro question of, for how long can central banks actually persist on this path? Because as we hit those anniversary dates, the pain is actually going to escalate in economies with a structure similar to Canada or maybe like the UK. Richard, maybe what's your comment on that from a UK perspective? Yeah, I mean, absolutely right, Mo. I mean, the, the, the similarities are, are, are apparent. I think, you know, from a UK consumer perspective, most, most residential owners from a mortgage perspective have, you know, either, either two or five-year fix on their mortgages. So within the next period, you're going to see those mortgages uh, fixes come off and they're going to have to re, re, remortgage or refix. You know, anecdotally, I mean, you, you're, you know, an investor that fixed at 1% is now refixing at 5 6%. Their mortgage is going up from what was, let's say, 1,000 pounds to 1,800 pounds. So it's almost doubling, right? I mean, that's got to come from somewhere else in their budget, right? So you, you're definitely going to see consumers tightening their belt. You're already seeing it, right? That combined with inflation, energy prices, just overall pessimism, you, you know, you are going to see the consumers under pressure. Um, and, you know, it's been a very, it's been in the headlines here consistently for the last few, few months. Um, from a business perspective, it's not dissimilar, right? Most of these businesses are, you know, funded over a base rate or over Sonia. The rising interest rates are going to have an impact on their, on their cash flows and overall on their ability to service debt, right? So when we're looking at debt service cover ratios, when we're looking at multiples of leverage, that's coming down, right? Debt service cover ratios have to go up. You know, you have to scenario, you know, you know we're running scenarios at base rates at four, five, six percent, right? So you're looking at, you know, all in debt rates, you know, eight to 12 percent, right? It's, it's, it's substantial, right? So going into these deals, you have to lend less, right, as a multiple. You have to have adequate cover on debt service cover ratio, interest cover. What that's going to result in is that those capital structures are going to have to have more equity, you know, or prices have to come down, right, to compensate. Um, I think it's going to be a combination of, of those factors. So I think we are going to see recapitalizations. We're already, you know, we saw it in the VC market. We're continuing to see it. And, and I think we're going to see recapitalization events coming through both in the public and private markets. And as a debt provider, we get excited because the, this is where we can, you know, where we can price effectively and, and, and really generate real returns above base rate. So we can get our infla investors inflation linked returns and, and you know, I think uh, extract, you know, mid-teen IRRs for what we were getting a couple of years ago, you know, mid to high single digits.
Yeah, it's a nice time to be an equity-led structure, that's for sure. And exactly, all those points you make about asset values coming down, I mean, it's really helpful to our listeners to understand. You know, you start to understand the impact on the private market of a rising yield curve and then lenders putting in higher covenants. Now people need more equity to do the same deal they would have done before. Where is that equity coming from? Cash is tight. So what ends up happening is people who have been sitting on strong balance sheets waiting for this to happen can now swoop in and start to pick up assets. And what you end up seeing is you still see deals, you still see pipeline, you still see all of this happening, but you see businesses that were marginal or were overgeared starting to come under pressure and then there's a few desperate sales in the market. And this is where the smart money that has the buffer climbs in, picks up the right assets and rides out the next cycle. And then in six or seven years time, no one can understand how they made so many or so much money. But it all comes down to timing and entry point and valuation and all the stuff we harp on about. I think interestingly, Ghost, it's both, in, it's both timing the, the investment, right? But also timing the exit. And again, I think, I think most investors are good at one or the other. They're generally not good at both. So the key is to try and be good at both. And I think we, again, I'm we very fortunate we benefit from, you know, r really sound experienced investors that, that we get to leverage off, not, not necessarily myself. But look, it's going to be tough, right? And I think it's going to be a, a little bit of survival mode for a lot of companies to get through. And once we get inflation under control, hopefully interest rates will start to come down again and we'll start to normalize. But I think that's a while away still. I think the other big thing is for UK businesses, you know, for the last few years or for the last 10 years, euro, dollar and pound, have, have, they've really moved in sync, right? So hedging of, you know, of, of goods and services, right, has really, I think, gone, not, not unnoticed, but for, you know, I think for now it's going to become a, a much more prominent, prominent idea where you have to hedge your, you know, if you're buying assets in euros and you're selling them in pounds, you're going to have to hedge your stock. Right. Again, as South Africans, we, we know quite a bit about that. You know. So again, I think we can add real value to our, our borrowers and to our partners. And I think we can assess at risk in a, in a way that maybe only a few can do in, in the UK. Not that we, have a, we don't have a unique lens, but we definitely have an, a, a competitive advantage. Richard, I think that's great. I'm actually gonna, gonna touch on your point about timing and exit because I'm, I'm cognizant of the time we have left on this particular show. But you know, I, I think what's so fascinating is that you've, you've indicated how we're probably gonna see tough times come through now. Uh, you guys are you know, asset and capital allocators. You have the ability to play across the capital stack. So you play not just as a debt provider. I know that's, that's a very core competency of Westbrook, but you've got the equity angle to it as well. And that's where something like your, your hybrid dynamic opportunities fund that you mentioned would come into play. Now, my last question here is that traditionally when things are going well, people want to be in equities. So, you know, you kind of default in a risk on bull market, you want to be in equities. In a bear market, you know, traditionally, you actually wanted to be in fixed income, except, well, right now we've had the sell-off across asset classes. We know about how those 60-40 portfolios have all done so badly because all assets have sold off. What is your, your, what is your perception in terms of how this evolves over time because you play in a unique in an unlisted space you play in a space where again we have impressed on our listeners with yourselves as well the the need and the the, the real imperative of taking a longer term view on things so in terms of playing that out are we saying more pain over a, a short to medium time period and when do you actually see the performance of your fund kicking through? Because it might not be apparent today as you're deploying the capital, as you're investing now, but that should really then kick in as things start to normalize. So if you slice your bull and your bear market into a time period, 
what is your perception around how a fund like your Dynamic Opportunities Fund should perform for investors who are interested? I'll start off by saying, look, I think private credit and private, you know, private credit is, in my mind, one of the places to be going into this cycle. I'd rather be lower down the capital structure in a more senior secured position and give up upside, you know, pure upside optionality and equity type returns for downside protection, right? I think the name of the game is compounding and, and we look to compound our investors and our wealth consistently and conservatively over time. Right? So if we can do that without having you know, drawdowns or losses along the way, you, you should be a very wealthy person by the end of the journey. The, the second part to that is you, you want to find that asymmetry. You want to find out where you know, the risk of capital loss is low, right? and your, your, your chance of getting upside is higher. And that's hard to find. It's easier to find in, in, in areas or in, in situations like this where there are wider dislocations and there are other events or other circumstances which are acquiring... Um, liquidity, and and the market is thinning, and therefore you you effectively can, can become a price a price maker rather than a price taker, which was the case a couple of years ago, or even to to last year. In in you know from a hybrid perspective, what are we really doing there? We're taking a, a, a effectively it's a it's a probability distribution, right? Where we are saying we're putting ninety five percent of our capital into debt, right? And we're spreading that over a portfolio of opportunities, seven to ten deals. Right, where we're getting eight to twelve percent returns above base, right? So you are floating and you're getting that inflation hedge, and then you're getting within that portfolio a small piece of equity upside across seven or eight or nine or ten deals, and that's pure optionality, right? And in some cases we don't pay for that optionality; we get that as part of the return, as part of the transaction that restructuring. And ultimately, to Mo's point, I don't know which one of those will work. I don't think all of them will will effectively create equity value. Right, but I, I know that I'm, I'm, you know, quite confident in me getting my debt back, plus my debt return, my coupon, which is floating, and then out of ten of them, maybe three or four of them will have equity-like returns. And I'd rather be there, and I'd rather give up upside in this environment for downside protection. I think there will be an opportunity to go back into to risk and back into equity, but I know where I'm investing my, my capital. Um, at, at this stage. Yeah, Richard, I honestly do think that makes a world of sense right now. I'm definitely not buying broad equity index exposure myself. A little bit of stock picking here and there, reducing debts on my own balance sheet where I can, which is not different to investing in fixed income. You're just saving yourself fixed income. So that really does make a world of sense. I think that's pretty much what we've got time for on this one. I'd like to point our listeners back to episode 69, which was the first time you joined us, Richard, to talk about investing in private debt. That's a while ago now. That was back in March. Uh, the world was a little bit different then. And you also joined us on episode 81 to talk about hybrid capital. That was in June. So to our listeners, if you're keen to learn more about this space, and it is incredibly interesting, it comes with nuggets of info on the UK market as well, how to structure deals, how to think about the capital stack, which is a term you may never have heard in your life before. Go and get stuck in on the content. It really is interesting. And go and check out the Westbrook website. It's westbrook.co.za. And, you know, yes, it is for typically selected investors, but the more you learn, the better. And if you are someone who is, you know, able to invest in these kind of structures or you're looking for interesting, you know, sources of finance, then speak to the team. They are super approachable, very talented, genuinely. And yeah, it's always a pleasure having you guys on. Thanks very much, Ghost and, and Mo, for having me. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this. Hit us up on social media. It's at Finance Ghost and at Mohammed Nala. Richard, to you and the Westbrook team, we look forward to the next time we have you guys on because there's still so much interesting stuff we can talk about. 
And who knows how many uh, prime ministers and finance ministers you're going to have in the interim. But uh, we'll hit you up the next time Mate, on that. Mo, your turn is coming. You're, you're the only one in a stable country right now. Your turn is coming. Mean reversion dictates it's your turn next. Until next week, same time, same place, guys. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.